we're going to be talking about mercy and being full of mercy, being merciful. Does anybody remember the show Full House? Right? Movie, the, the show Full House. They tried to reboot this here pretty soon. It didn't go very well. But the original, and you had John Stamos, right? And his, his you know, idol was Elvis, right? So he was always saying, have mercy, have mercy, right? And it became kind of this cliche, this catchphrase of have mercy. But, you know, when we really think about that, that's something that we need very desperately is mercy. And because we need it so bad, we should be those that are merciful to those around us. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Luke's gospel gives us one of the most well-known parables. Uh, Even people that are outside the church are familiar with this parable, and they understand the essence of what Jesus was trying to say. And Jesus was teaching this big group of people, and it says that a lawyer stood up to test him, to ask him a question. Now, this wasn't a lawyer in the sense that we think about it today. Uh, lawyers back then, law, you know, the, they studied the law. They spent all their time studying the scriptures, the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Torah, as they called it, the books of Moses, because he's the one that wrote them. And they would spend all their time studying them in the commentaries that the rabbis had written. And so they followed Jesus around, mostly at the request of the Pharisees, to listen to him and to test him and see if they could catch him in saying something that was against what the Torah said, try to, you know, catch him in blasphemy. And it says that he stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? It's a pretty good question. It's a question that's on everybody's mind at some point in their life. That This isn't all there is. What can we do? What's beyond this? And I love how Jesus responds because he responds to his question with a question. And I get I frustrate my poor wife sometimes because I have a tendency to do this. I don't mean to do it. I don't know why I do it, but I answer questions with questions all the times. But just be like Jesus. That's what he's doing. But he uses this here, and he's talking to the lawyer, and he says, well, listen, you're the lawyer. You're the expert. How do you read it? What does it say in the scriptures? And it says this. This is in Luke's gospel. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Jesus says, bingo, you hit the nail on the head. You got it. Do that, and you're golden. But because he's a lawyer, he cannot help himself. He has to ask one more question, and I'm glad that he did. Because that's where Jesus responds. He responds in verse 29 by saying, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Like, all that's nice, but like, who really is my neighbor? Let's, let's get this down. Um, Jesus had made it real simple. But we tend to complicate things. Because what we like to do is we take laws, we, talk, we take rules, and we start building on them. We start adding to them, and then we use those to beat other people over the head, right? Jesus knows this. He knows exactly what we're saying. When we say, can you spell that out for me? Can you show me where the boundaries are? Because we have a tendency to walk right up to that boundary, right? That's what we do in our fallen state. And so Jesus gives us this beautiful illustration, a story that most people know, and inherently we know that it's true. We know this inside of us. Let's pick up in verse 30. So Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. 
So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Who is my neighbor? Everyone. The lawyer tried to complicate it. Jesus made it even simpler. Everybody is your neighbor. That road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a dangerous road. It was actually called the bloody way. He's not going from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's leaving Jerusalem. He's leaving the holy city, and he's heading out, maybe in the wrong direction. And why, if he knew it was called the bloody way, if he knew it was dangerous, why did he go on his own? Why was he by himself? I mean, maybe, maybe he was unfamiliar with that. Uh, maybe he didn't have any other choice. Or maybe he was just dumb, honestly. In which case, I can relate to that. I have answered the question quite a few times, why did you do that? And I say, I don't know. I don't know why I did that. And a lot of times we will take paths that head in the wrong direction. And when we do that, we can end up getting beat half to death spiritually. Now, I've heard the characters in this story get mixed up from time to time. So I just want to clarify what these characters stand for and who they represent. This one, this weary traveler, the one that took the road out of the holy city towards Jericho the one that made the dumb decision, the one that got beat half to death, that's you and me. That's us. We're the ones that have made poor decisions that end up in really bad places and we get beaten up spiritually. That's who we are. And the thief, the robber, the murderer, that's our enemy, Satan. He's the one that tries to trip us up, that tries to beat us up. And when we follow our own way, when we make those type of decisions to intentionally walk In passive sin, he's going to catch us. He's going to beat us up, especially if we're alone. We're going to be vulnerable spiritually. We may be alive physically, but we're dead spiritually. And as believers, first of all, we're not called to walk alone. Second of all, we're called to move towards righteousness, not away from it. Now, a priest goes by, and he passes by on the other side of the road. Now, the priests were the political and religious leaders of the day. They were the big shots. They were the ones that were God's representatives. He was spo- they were supposed to represent God to the people. In Numbers 19, we read that if you touched a dead body, if a priest touched a dead body, they would be unclean for seven days. Seven days, they had to go through a purification process. And so he, maybe he didn't know that this guy was dead or alive. And he's thinking, if I touch this guy and he's dead, I'm off for seven days. I've got a lot of ministry to do. I'm very important. I've got a lot of things on my schedule. I can't afford to take seven days off. And so he passes by on the other, th- on the other side. He may have been religious, but his heart was nowhere near what the father's heart was. It was nowhere near where the father's heart was. Next to go by is a Levite. Levites were the one that were chosen by God to do his work in and around the temple. That was their job. God had chosen them for that purpose. They were kind of like the social workers of the day. They did practical things. Maybe he thought his work was too important too. 
if he touched this guy, he was going to be unclean. He was going to have to take a week off. So he passes by on the other side too, not showing compassion. So you have the religious elite. You have the dedicated church worker. Both of them pass by. Then you have this Samaritan that walks by. I mean, who is this Samaritan? That's what the people wanted to know because the Jews and the Samaritans were sworn enemies. They did not like each other. And I don't have time to get into all that, but they hated each other. And for some reason, this Samaritan is the one who stops to help him out. I read this week, I thought it was rather timely. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we would find in each other enough sorrow and suffering to disarm all of our hostility. That's very true right now. We grow callous, we grow hard towards other people. And if we could read their secret history, even the people that we run into, the things that they've been through, how broken they are, what they're walking through currently, we have to give people a lot of grace and be merciful. Sometimes people pop off at us. Sometimes people do things to us that are hurtful. But if we could see behind the curtain, if we could see what they're going through, what they've walked through, we would be a lot more merciful than we tend to be. So this man stops. Who is this man? Talking about the characters in the story. The listeners would have wanted to know. The good Samaritan is also the good shepherd. He is the one. The one that knew no sin that became sin for us. He is the one who reaches down in mercy and pulls us out of our sin. Who takes care of us when we're beaten half to death on the road. That's Jesus. He's the one that has mercy on us. And the Samaritan puts on oil and wine. Oil and wine were very significant. They were very symbolic in the scriptures. Uh, oil representing the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and the healing power. Both of these had very strong healing properties. And the oil stands for the Holy Spirit, which heals and empowers. And then he pours wine on his wounds. And the wine representing the blood, the life of Jesus, the blood that covers us and heals us spiritually. So he pours those on. And then he puts him on his own animal and takes him to the inn. Now, what do you think the inn represents? You guys are sitting in it right now. You're sitting in the inn. This is the place. Jesus saves them, and then he drops them off at the inn, and he tells the innkeepers, all of you, take care of them. Take care of this person. And when I come back, because he is coming back, if I owe you anything, which he doesn't owe us anything, but he's very gracious. He says, I will repay you. When he comes back, based on how we've lived, how we've ministered to others, both inside and outside the church, we will be rewarded. He's faithful. He saves them. He sets them up there. We are to care for them. We are to be an extension of that mercy that Jesus shows. And that's our Beatitudes today. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The first four that we've touched on so far have to do with um, our inner self, how we see ourselves before God. And then the next ones that we're going to touch on, starting with this one, is the manifestation of those attitudes, of those um, things that are supposed to be worked in our life. Um, if we do the first four, these next ones will be manifest. They will come out. We will demonstrate them in our regular life. The days that Jesus lived in were not characterized by mercy, not by a long shot. Uh, they were occupied by the Romans, uh, Roman soldiers. They were a very cruel, very merciless people, a society that valued strength and power and discipline, um, not mercy. And there was a Roman philosopher who wrote, mercy is a disease of the soul, his weakness. They did not value mercy. Now, when I was little, we watched The Karate Kid. 
And now they've rebooted that, right, Cobra Kai. But there was the Cobra Kai, and they would walk in. He went into the dojo, right, and he's watching them practice. And what did he say? He said, mercy is for the weak. We do not train to be merciful here. That's what he said. We do not train. And mercy in that culture was not common. Uh, Fathers actually had the ability, um, the power, when their baby was born, as it came out, they would either give a thumbs up or a thumbs down on whether or not to keep the baby. And that was quite common. And they also had the same power over slaves, over servants, over their wives. They were a very merciless people. So you have the Romans, then you have the Pharisees, this proud, judgmental group of people that looked down their noses at everybody else, placed heavy burdens on them, beat them up with the law. It's really questionable if anybody in that day realized how much of a virtue mercy was, because they didn't experience it in their daily life. And Jesus comes along and he says, blessed are you if you have mercy, because you will receive mercy. Mankind is inherently selfish and self-centered in our fallen state. That's just the way it is. We do not reach out in compassion to people by default. Not if it's going to interrupt our schedule. Not if it's going to inconvenience us in any way. That's not our default. We have busy schedules to keep. We have lots of places to go. Uh, I posted a video earlier this week when I was thinking about a word that popped in my head, um, the word Godspeed. Right? And when we say Godspeed, we don't hear that word a lot anymore, but when somebody would go on a journey, you would say Godspeed. And that would mean have a safe journey, but also have a speedy journey. Right? Like get there safe, get there quickly. And if you think about that, when you break that word apart, Godspeed, what does that mean? And I was thinking about Jesus, and you know, him and his disciples didn't have horses. They didn't travel around on horses. They didn't go around on donkeys. They walked everywhere they went. They went slowly. And I heard this guy said, they moved at the speed of relationship, which I liked. They moved at the speed of relationship. Jesus had time for people. He had time to develop relationships. He healed every person that came to him. Every person that came to him, he healed. He was invested. He reached out to the lonely, reached out to the ask outcasts, and drew them into his circle of love and forgiveness. That's what Jesus did. And one of the best examples of that is found in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, this is starting in verse 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Because they knew that Jesus was a man of mercy. They said, they said that to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, no one, Lord. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go from now on, sin no more. First of all, how did they catch this woman in the act of adultery? Have you ever thought about that? That's pretty strange. I think it was a setup. I think they went out of their way to catch this woman 
because they were trying to test Jesus, and they brought her to him. Now, here's the weird thing. If you were caught in the act of adultery, both the man and the woman were to be brought out and stoned. Both of them. The man is conspicuously absent. It's just the woman. They brought her out here. Everybody expected judgment. That's what the law says. But Jesus has mercy. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, which is judgment. The law said death, but Jesus said, you all deserve death. All of you. Let him who's without the sin cast the first stone. And because of that, I heard one Bible teacher uh, theorize, we don't know this for sure, but it's an interesting idea, that when Jesus knelt down and he was writing with his finger in the ground, he was writing out their sins, things that they had done wrong, reminders of how guilty they were. And we don't know if that's true, but it's an interesting thought. We don't know what he was writing in the ground. But whatever he was writing, they started to leave with the older ones first. Like that's interesting because the longer we walk with the Lord, the more keenly aware we are of our sinfulness, of our brokenness, and our desire to be more like Jesus. And I think it's important in our day, especially for the young people, to see the more mature believers wrestling with these types of issues and walking in grace and mercy, and they see that and then follow in their example because they're not getting it out in the world. They need to get it in here, and they need to see the mature believers, and they're the ones that leave first, and then the young people follow. I think it's important to note here, too, that he didn't just rescue her from punishment. He called her into new life. He said, go and sin no more. Leave that lifestyle that is killing you. It's going to lead to death. Leave that lifestyle. Is she going to sin again? Yes. But he was calling her out of that lifestyle. Leave that leave it behind. And our society is blinded and deceived into thinking that if we just leave people alone and let them do what they want to do, regardless of how it contradicts the scriptures, they're going to be okay. They'll be happy. Let me live my life, even if it's contrary to what the scriptures say. Don't point me towards the Lord. I'm not hurting anyone. In fact, I'm loving. Maybe, maybe she really loved this person that she was having an adulterous affair with, but That goes against what the Bible said. It's not okay. Not if it stands in opposition to what God's word says. And if you look at the lives of people, if you really study the lives of people who intentionally walk in rebellion to what the Bible says, you're going to find death and you're going to find brokenness. You're going to find that over and over again. But Jesus, but Jesus, Jesus can step in stay the execution and call that person out of that life that they're involved in and into life. That is the mercy that Jesus has. He knows, guys. He is aware. I talked about that campaign that said he gets us. He knows us. He knows our frailties. Hebrews 2.17 says that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Mercy is a selfless deed. It's selfless. God wants to be, his people to be givers, not takers. We are to be givers. Not pretending helpers, but practical helpers. We don't condemn, we show mercy. Food for the hungry, like we did last week. Comfort for those who are grieving. Love for those who are rejected. Forgiveness for the offender and companionship to the lonely. That's the type of mercy that Jesus extended practically. 
And we hear mercy paired with other words in the Bible quite frequently. Um, Some of them can sound synonymous. They sound the same, but they're actually quite different. Uh, For instance, mercy and forgiveness. You hear those two mentioned together quite a bit. And forgiveness flows out of mercy, but mercy is greater than forgiveness because it reaches down into our weaknesses, into our brokenness. Lamentations 3.22 says that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Mercy is bigger than forgiveness. They get paired together quite a bit. Then we have mercy and love, love and mercy. Forgiveness flows out of mercy, but mercy flows out of love. That's how important love is. Ephesians 2.4 tells us that God is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. Just as mercy is greater than forgiveness, love is greater than mercy because it loves even when there's nothing to pardon. There's nothing to forgive. Love loves anyway. Mercy's like the physician and love is like the friend. Mercy acts because of need, love out of affection. Mercy is for times of trouble, but love is constant. And there can't be any real mercy without love. Love has to be present first for there to be mercy. You also hear grace and mercy mentioned together quite a bit. Grace and mercy. uh, Paul uses this all the time in his greetings to the churches. Grace and mercy. These two have the closest possible relationship, but they are different. Mercy has to do with pain and distress and problems, whereas grace offers pardon for the crime Mercy has to do with the consequences of sin. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. Mercy deals with the negative. Grace with the positive. Because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from the Lord. To be blunt, we all deserve hell. We do. All of us deserve hell. But because of Jesus' sacrifice, he extends mercy and grace. Mercy offers relief from punishment, grace offers pardon for the crime. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. When the good Samaritan cared for the man along the road, he was extending mercy. But when he put him on his own animal, took him to the inn, and paid his way, that was grace. Mercy relates to the negative, but grace to the positive. Mercy says no hell, but grace says heaven. We also have another pair that seems to be kind of incompatible. They seem to be opposites, and that's mercy and justice. Now, how can God be all merciful and all just? How can those two characteristics exist in God at the same time? If mercy says you're not getting what you need, and the definition of justice is getting what you deserve, sorry, mercy is not getting what you deserve, and the definition of justice is you are to get what you deserve, how can both of those exist in the Father. Because you would think that if he is all-merciful, wouldn't that negate his justice? Here's the crucial detail. Sin entered the world. Sin entered the world. There was no need for justice and mercy until sin came into the picture. Now we need both. We need grace and we need mercy. God can't show mercy without punishing sin. That's an important detail. He cannot show mercy without punishing sin. For there to be mercy, there has to be justice. 
Now, this has very real application in our day where people have their own version of truth and what's right, and they want their truth to be validated, whether or not it goes against Scripture. And that includes some Christians, unfortunately. They want their idea of right, what their truth is to be validated, regardless if of that goes against what the Bible says. But by overlooking sin, without calling it what it is, it isn't mercy, That's not grace, that's not love. Overlooking sin is not grace, it's not mercy, it's not love. Mercy that ignores sin is not mercy at all. For some some reason, we have a really hard time with this, even in the church, and it seems like we either go to one extreme or the other. Uh, You see people who are full of condemnation, feels like they're full of hate, they're not full of love, shouting others down in condemnation for their sin without any sign of hope, for God's mercy and forgiveness. These are the Pharisees, basically. Um, But what's most common in the church is to have love and grace and mercy without calling people out of their sinful lifestyle. That's become a lot more common. In 1 Samuel 15, we have a most interesting story, a story of God's judgment and man's false mercy overlooking sin. The prophet Samuel went out to meet King Saul. Uh, God had told Samuel, I have a message for King Saul. I want you to go out and deliver it to him. When the people of uh, Israel were brought out of Egypt, when they left Sinai, they ran into an evil people known as the Amalekites. And they were just simply trying to pass through to Canaan, to the promised land. And the Amalekites came out and started attacking them, went to war with them, even though they were unprovoked. Now, a little background here. Um, you might remember that before the battle, Moses wanted to go up on the hill so he could oversee the battle, see what was going on. And he went up there with his brothers, with Aaron and Hur. And so he was up there looking over the battle, and he had his staff, right, the staff that God had given him. And when he held it up, the people were winning. They were winning the battle. But if you've done this for very long, your arms get tired. And so as he you know, brought the staff down to shake his arms out. He got tired. Then they started to lose the battle. And so he would raise them back up again and went through this process. But what Aaron and Hur did is they went and got a rock and they went and got it for Moses to sit on. And then they held his arms up until the battle was won. It's a beautiful example of supporting church leadership and discipleship and one anothering, which is a whole nother message altogether. But that's what they did. A fantastic example. They hold up his hands until the battle is won. Listen to what God says about the Amalekites. They were an evil people who attacked Israel. In Exodus 17, 14, Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and he called the name of it, The Lord is my banner saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Justice. Why? Why against the Amalekites? Well, in the Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary of the Old Testament, the scribes um, and the lawyers would write commentaries, the rabbis would write commentaries on the scriptures as well as some of their personal history. And what they say in the Midrash is that the Amalekites were sorcerers. They were into all types of the occult. And true or not, the belief at that time was that the Amalekites could disguise themselves through their sorcery as animals so that they could avoid capture during war. 
Now, that's important later, so remember that. Back to Saul and Samuel. Now, over time, there had been other run-ins with the Amalekites, and God told Samuel, their time is up. Now is the time I'm going to blot them out. I promised Moses that, and now it's time. I'm going to fulfill that oath. And he goes to King Saul, and he relays the message that they are to go to war and completely annihilate the Amalekites. Now, People get upset from time to time when they read these types of stories in the Old Testament when God says, I want you to completely wipe them out, blot them out, um, out of Canaan. But the people of the land were evil. Uh, They were slowly destroying themselves. Slowly destroying themselves. So God said, you need to clear out that sin from the land. You need to purge it out completely. They were involved in all kinds of witchcraft and the occult. They were worshiping false gods, really demons, and sacrificing their children on altars. They were doing all kinds of um, perversion sexually. They were caught up in all that stuff. Um, God is patient. It had been over 400 years since God gave that word to Moses up to the time of Saul. Over 400 years, and he says, now it's time. I'm fed up. Now I'm going to fulfill my oath. Gang, we've been a country for 250 years. That's it. And look how far we have come from the time this nation started to where we are right now. God is patient, but sin has to be judged at some point. And it's come upon the Amalekites. Saul summons his army. He has 210,000 men to go to war against Amalek. And they go to war and they win pretty handily. They actually win the war pretty easily, but Saul and his men spared the king and some of the animals. Saul thought he was having mercy on the king. He kept him alive, and they also kept some of the animals alive, all the bad stuff they destroyed, but they kept some of the good stuff, which is not what God told them to do. They didn't completely purge evil out of their midst. They kept kept some of it because they didn't really think it was that big of a deal. And We do this too, honestly. Let's be honest with ourselves. Um, God tells us, get the sin out of your life. And we do most of it. You know, we get rid of the bad stuff, the really bad stuff. But some of it, that's not really that big of a deal. We think, I'll deal with it later. I'm going to deal with it. I'm going to get to it. But just not right now. And God said, that's not what I told you to do. I told you to get rid of all of it. Then God tells Samuel, I regret that I made Saul king. That's a sad statement. The people wanted a king. Samuel said, you do not want a king. Trust me, you don't want a king. He is going to tax you. He's going to take your men and put them into battle. You do not want a king. You want to be ruled by God. And they said, we want a king like the other nations around us. God told Samuel, all right, we'll give him a king. And he gave him Saul. And it says that Samuel wept all night. He wept over Saul and what was going to happen to the people. And so Samuel goes out to meet Saul, and let's pick it up in 1 Samuel 15, 13. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, Really? What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, Oh, well, they've brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, because we're going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. Don't try to rationalize your disobedience, Saul. The Lord anointed you king. He gave you a job to do. He gave you a specific commandment, and you didn't do it. And Saul starts out trying to justify himself. We did most of it. 
We almost did all of it. We captured their king. We kept some of the sheep alive. Now, remember what I said about the belief in that day that they were sorcerers and they could disguise themselves as animals to avoid capture. And Saul knew this and he still kept some of them alive. He allowed some of the animals to survive. He allowed the king to survive. I'm going to deal with it, just not now. Here's how Samuel responds. Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul thought he was extending mercy to the the Amalekite king, but he wasn't dealing with the sin like God told him to. Sin has to be judged. God pronounced judgment. And in not dealing with the sin, it came back to bite him. In our culture today, we are seen as unloving when we hold people accountable for their sin. We're seen as unloving to the world around us. People say grace, but cheap grace is neither just nor merciful. It doesn't offer punishment or pardon for the sin because it overlooks sin. And when it overlooks sin, those people are still lost in their sin. Does that make sense? When you overlook it, when you don't deal with it, it still remains. God can't judge it, can't get rid of it. And we have a country full of people who are lost in their sin because we're afraid to confront the sin in their lives. And so we end up validating their lifestyle and they're still lost in their sin. We can't enter God's mercy without repentance. It's not possible. It's a false gospel that offers people the hope of entering God's mercy without repentance. Nobody can rely on their personal uh, goodness or presume upon God's goodness for the forgiveness of their sins. They have to repent. That's what Samuel says here. Presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. We don't presume anything. We repent for the sin that we've committed. It's actually a great injustice to simply ignore sin because it has eternal consequences. When we cancel justice, we cancel mercy. That's what happens. When we cancel justice, we cancel mercy. If we ignore sin, we deny the truth. And truth and mercy are inseparable. They go together. They cannot be split up. Listen to this. In every true act of mercy, someone pays the price. In every true act of mercy, someone pays the price. Jesus paid the price for you. The Good Samaritan paid the price for the man who was beaten up. The good news is that justice was satisfied on the cross. Sin was forgiven, righteousness was fulfilled, and forgiveness and mercy was made available through Jesus on the cross. Through that judgment, sin had to be judged. Mercy was extended. And we're to be examples of Christ's mercy to those around us, but we are also to call those people, confront the sin in their lives so that they can be made right. In Matthew 25, Jesus is talking about being merciful towards others. This is one of the most sobering portions of Scripture, in my opinion. Jesus is speaking of the final judgment, and he's talking about the fact that the saints and the sinners will be there, and there will be a great divide between them. He calls it the sheep and the goats. And the sheep he's going to put on one side, and the goats he's going to put on the other. And the sheep will inherit the kingdom, 
and the goats will inherit punishment and eternal separation. What's the difference between these two? Matthew 25, 35, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The difference between the sheep and the goats is what they did and didn't do. Did they earn their salvation? Did the sheep earn their salvation? No, they lived out their faith. It wasn't just words. They lived it out. Sheep and goats are pretty similar in a lot of, in a lot of ways, if you think about it. They're both about the same size, right? They travel in herds. They both graze. They're both not too bright. They share a lot of the same characteristics. But when Jesus addresses the goats, he says to them, in essence, you withheld mercy. It was in your power to extend mercy. You withheld it from them. You lived for yourself. You said you were a Christian, but there was no fruit in your life. There was no evidence of it that people could see. James writes that there will be merciless judgment for those who have no mercy. Judgment will be merciless for those who have no mercy. God's people, citizens of the kingdom, must be characterized by mercy. It is not optional. It is a command. Mercy is for those who live out these first few beatitudes that we talked about. Humility and repentance and surrender and holiness. Psalm 103.11 says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. And when we have these things in our life, when we work these beatitudes in our life, we have a holy fear of God and his judgment and how we live before him and why we need to be full of mercy because of the mercy that's been extended to us. So how do we put this in practice in our lives? What does that look like? Well, the first thing we do is just practical acts of mercy. This is easy, right? This is providing for people. This is feeding the hungry. This is clothing those in need. It is visiting the sick and the lonely. If we're going to be merciful, we're going to be full of mercy, we have to demonstrate it. People have to see that in our lives. And I believe this is an area that the church has been passive in. Um, there are lots of incredible organizations that go out and offer mercy to people, and we fund these organizations, and that's fantastic because they wouldn't be able to do what they do without it. But the problem is when we just simply fund those organizations, when we just write a check, it doesn't do anything in our hearts. It doesn't change us on the inside. We think if we just write a check that that's good enough, but it doesn't change us. And the church has really deferred to other organizations. Big one is the government. We've kind of let them take over that function. And if churches were operating the way they used to, people would come to church for that help, for mercy, and we would extend that. We would take care of them. They would get the gospel message. But because we have let the government take over that, people aren't getting the message. People tend to give out of pity, which isn't mercy. We need to get back to that. Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor with you. You can do good to them whenever you want. You're always going to have poor people with you. In that day, they called it practicing righteousness. Uh, when, they, when the Jewish people would take up alms, when they would take up giving for the poor, they called that practicing righteousness. They actually had a box in their house that was called the tzedek box. 
the Tzedek box. And what they would do is when they had extra change, they would throw it in there. They would purposely put money in the box. And when it was full, they would actually have it there so that when people came to their door, they had money to provide for them. Or they would go out and find people to provide for. And they call that practicing righteousness. One of the names for God is Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord our righteousness. If we want to be full of mercy, we have to be ones that walk it out practically. Not only should we show it practically, but it needs to be seen in our attitudes toward others. Not just practical things that we do, but also in our attitudes and how we look at others. In Deuteronomy 15, it says, Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give him freely, and your heart shall not be grudgingly when you give to him, because For this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in your land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Don't be unworthy in your heart. Don't be stingy. Don't look down on other people that are in need. Don't do it begrudgingly. God said he loves a cheerful giver. You guys did an incredible job last week being cheerful givers to others. Here it says that if you look at somebody grudgingly, that that is a sin. If we're looking down our nose at people, not wanting to give them mercy. If we hold a grudge against someone, we are withholding mercy. We become hard-hearted. So we show it practically. It also should be seen in our attitudes. We also need to show it spiritually. Augustine said, if we weep over the body of a loved one whose soul has departed, Shouldn't we also weep for the soul from whom God has departed? We should have a concern spiritually for those that are lost and for our brothers and sisters that have lost their way that need to be brought back to the Lord. We should have a concern spiritually. We also show spiritual mercy through confrontation. Uh, This isn't being mean-spirited. It's not being argumentative. It's not being Pharisee-like. But it is calling people out of their sin and into life in a loving way so that they can be made right with God and receive salvation for those that are lost. In 2 Timothy 2.25, it says, we should correct our opponents with gentleness. You're not going to see that on Facebook. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So we correct them in gentleness, and perhaps God will grant them repentance. It's not an act of mercy to overlook sin or to be indifferent towards the suffering of others. We also need to show practical um, mercy, spiritual mercy through prayer. That's an easy one. We need to be those that pray. Pray for our enemies. Pray for those that are hurting. Pray for those that are lost and walking in disobedience. James 5 says that the fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, we need to be praying for others. That will accomplish much. And finally, most basic, we share our faith and the saving gospel of Jesus Christ with others. That's the most merciful thing that we can do is to witness to others, to share our faith with them. If mercy is offering a helping hand, then sharing our faith is offering a life-saving hand, literally, spiritually. These are practical ways that we can incorporate and demonstrate mercy in our lives. This is an area that we all have room to grow in, right? In a small cemetery in a parish churchyard in England stands a granite tombstone with this inscription. John Newton, 
pastor, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slavers in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and anointed to preach the faith that he had long labored to destroy. You may not remember his name, but all of us know the song that he wrote as a testimony of his life, Amazing Grace. God got a hold of John Newton. He was sailing these ships, watching men, women, and children be dragged into slavery mercilessly. And that was always at the forefront of his mind, chasing after God, hungering after God, realizing the great mercy that he had been extended. Why him of all people who needed judgment? He deserved judgment, not mercy. But so do we. Not only did John Newton receive forgiveness, but he also received a pardon. Forgiveness and a pardon. He was justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Forgiven, pardoned, and justified in the sight of God. And when we dwell on that, it should be easy for us to extend mercy to those around us. Jesus said, if you forgive, you'll be forgiven. And here he says, if you're full of mercy, you will receive mercy. Mercy. 